0: Welcome to the show and tell show of science. 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 Where we bring you the new news now. Today in the studio, we've got myself, Rochelle, and Anna. And
1: Hello. To- Hi.
0: <laughs> today, we're each going to bring you two stories and listeners are going to have the ability to vote on their favorites. And at the end of the year, the winner will get something from the loser. So Anna, do you want to start us off today?
1: I guess.
2: Wow, don't sound so sad. Okay, so my first story comes from the Elsevier Journal, and it's about cognition in great apes as compared to human infants. So this study focused specifically on communication about absent entities in great apes and humans, and the thinking behind this is sort of that we use conventional symbolic system as well as words, which, which could be considered a type of symbolic system to convey things that aren't present so if we desire something or are talking about something that's not present around us and we can't just point to it we will use words or symbols to describe this thing so this study took apes and humans of 12 months of age and compared how well they do with requesting items that are not present in the room how old were the apes They didn't say it was just various ages of apes. Oh, okay. Which is interesting because I think they're comparing kind of the most developed apes can be as compared to 12-month humans. Okay, that makes sense. uh, This is actually the age that infants start being able to decipher whether an object is present or not and kind of either request it or talk about it.
0: Okay.
2: So, I guess in captivity... Apes have been trained to use symbols to gesture to things or talk about things. But what scientists don't know if this, they don't know if this whole understanding of something being absent is directly related to having a symbolic system or if it just comes with the evolution of apes understanding that something is absent and they can request it or point to it or they understand that it's there. So basically for their experiments, they provided apes with two plates of two various objects and one of them was low quality and the other one was high quality. And they had a whole bunch of scenarios where they made sure that the apes could determine between low and high quality objects. So in the, I guess, testing scenario, they only chose the apes to proceed to the actual experimentation if they chose 10 out of 12 times the, the, correct, the correct object. Like of the some
0: apples quality. were wormy and some apples weren't or something like that. <laughs> no,
2: this. it was probably <laughs> higher. They, they, they did it based on, on right, food premises. Like cucumbers. Kind of, yeah. So what they did is they looked at... Each ape's food preference okay. So they did, the, they did it specific to the ape So for example Like grapes and cucumbers They made sure that that ape picked The grapes 10 out of 12 times oh, okay, That he was okay. allowed to give them So that they know that he can actually Had a preference in those two items Okay. And then what they did is they had two experiments The first experiment they would let The ape eat whatever he wanted And then whenever That plate ran out of that object They would replace food on that plate and so that's how he kind of trained them to see if they would actually keep requesting the high-quality item. And it turned out that, yes, that was the case. So if, for example, the plate with cucumbers was full, but the one with grapes was still empty, he would point to the empty plate.
0: Like, hey, to g- yeah,
2: yeah, bring me more grapes, grapes, because he understood that the fact that there used to be grapes there meant that there are grapes somewhere, but they're just not there, and that's the item he wants. Okay, okay. Kind of thing, like, yeah. regardless of whether it was resupplied to him or not. And then the second experiment is they removed both things. So, for example, like, both plates are empty, but he would point to the, he or she, I guess, would point to the plate that used to contain the grapes because he understood. That's where they used to be. Yeah, that's where they used to be, but it's absent now. But he still had that conception. And the interesting thing was, in the methods, they go into all these details about how some apes didn't have a preference, but they never showed a preference in any of the cases, so it was just based on... Oh, they're the just ape, happy to like eat the, yeah, was that. Yeah, the ape being finicky, okay. and so some That's of them—that's me as an ape. <laughs> but being finicky or not? Not <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> but basically, they did show that they do have some sort of uh, conception of what is absent, but they point to it because they know that there was a thing there and it's not there anymore. But they okay, can still okay, I
0: follow. It. So, yeah. what do they do with this then?
2: Uh, well, then they did the same thing with, I guess, humans and with the babies they they did it with toys so that that also they they brought in the fact that they can't compare the results of both studies statistically because they had different objects
0: yeah because toys are a lot harder to eat
2: yes and (laughs) (laughs) babies (laughs) will try though i know (laughs) but that's a totally different motivation as well it's like a play motivation versus like a eating yeah so different evolutionary mechanisms be behind that for example if you have one type of food there but Your grapes aren't there, but the cucumbers are there, you might just be like, well, I gotta eat something, so eat the cucumbers Mm -hmm. kind of thing, whereas with a toy, you could just, like, actually have a preference rather than just want to eat anything at all. Yeah. And also the apes had a lot more training, whereas the babies were just put in this room and they had to pick between the toy, and it was the exact same kind of thing, the same experimental layout, but because their attention span is so low and they didn't want the babies to start crying and freak out because they were being tested for so long, they would just do it super quickly. So there was also, I guess, a difference there. So you can't compare the two. But yeah, so they found that both 12-month-old infants and apes show this understanding of absent entities and can actually call them out specifically. So not just one thing that's not there, but they know which one isn't there in which spot. And the reason this is kind of interesting, I guess, in a scientific way is because they're trying to understand what things... Depend on language and having a symbolic system in place. Mm-hmm. So, how much of our behaviors or of, or of our cognitive abilities developed based on the systems we have in place, such as like speech and symbols, and able mm-hmm. to use hand lang- sign language? Yeah, and, and, stuff like that. and
0: knowledge of something that isn't present is a big part of that. Right?
2: Yeah, of course, it's very crucial for obviously abstract thinking. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're just trying to you can understand talk
1: about it without it being right in front of your face. Mm-hmm.
2: So like basically concluded or. The results suggest, because you can never really say that they concluded something, that these this kind of ability to identify absent entities is a very basic cognitive capacity, so it does not depend on language or having some sort of really complex symbolic system.
0: Okay. Uh, do you think that's why they chose apes and very young humans? Because of the lack of language in particular?
2: I think they did it mostly based on the cognitive cognitive development Yeah. of... Which is humans, even if maybe they started talking early, they... Well, who knows, but they were kind of more going for their ability to just identify things. Okay. But also, babies can't talk at a certain age because... Not necessarily because their brain doesn't develop fast enough, but because their throat is actually made so that they can lay and suckle at the same time and breathe so that they don't choke.
1: So Mm -hmm. they can't talk.
2: Yeah, so they can't make proper sounds. But then oh, later, yeah, cool. when they're, um, like, part of their throat shifts. So then all of a sudden, they would they can't, like, efficiently suckle while laying down. But then they're able to create the right noises. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, maybe I should do that for another story. Cool, cool.
1: What kind of apes did they use in this study? Uh, they used bonobo and chimpanzees.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, gorillas, orangutans.
0: Yeah. Cool. Interesting. Cool. Today I learned. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay, Rochelle. Yes. What have you brought today?
1: My turn. To the table. Yeah, it is okay. To the table. Okay. Well, my first story comes from the journal of Nature Communications, and it is about a tractor beam, like space aliens, but not made from space. Okay, so these. But well, that makes beam? no sense because yeah. when
2: you say beam, I think of like ray beams, like light beams, and you're like boom, boom, yeah. and the or, tractor's or is like yeah, like driving tractors. No, tractor no, no. no. This is this, is, this
0: like is like Star Trek, like like lock like, on. Yep, up,
1: Scotty. Oh, I
0: think that's a transporter beam. Okay, well, yeah, the, I think, the, tra- but the tractor beam is.
1: You can manipulate objects in midair without touching it.
0: Ah, so, so yeah. these
1: guys made but this, what tractor does this tractor. Have to beam? Do with tractors? Nothing. That's just what it's called. Like That's like silly. <laughs> more like an attractor. Yeah, but mine's like when like just a magnetic a attractor
0: or something. Just I, I top off well, the first it? two
2: letters. Of well, I guess I attractor. guess
0: beam doesn't end with a vowel. That's a good question.
2: Do they have space tractors? What, do you need tractors in space?
0: I don't know. Maybe to like till till the magnetosphere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody has watched um, Martian, The Martian, but absolutely no. Yeah. Anyways. He grows potatoes on Mars. You need a space tractor for that. No. Well, no, he uses a shovel in his yeah, hands, I think. Yeah.
0: I don't even think he had a shovel.
1: No, he just dug holes with his hands.
2: He,
0: well, no, he did. No, because he had a Yeah, because he was taking rock samples.
2: Yeah. But how do you dig when you're wearing giant gloves? Because you're in space. You're not. Their space oh, no. suits are totally he different. Was, he was it was like doing the computer. cultivation
0: inside with mm-hmm. a shovel.
2: Okay, that makes sense, because my next question would be how could you grow potatoes on Without the navigation? surface of
1: Mars? Yeah. Well, so this makes perfect sense. Well, watch The Martian, and I'll show okay. you how.
0: Yep. It's Product a step-by-step step guide.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, anyways, this tractor beam. <laughs> These guys at the University of Bristol developed a tractor beam. It's the first, world's first acoustic tractor beam. So... It uses high-amplitude sound waves to generate an acoustic hologram, and then they can manipulate the shape of the hologram to pick up and move small objects. So far, they've only been able to manipulate a small, like, styrofoam bead with a diameter, I think, of 4 millimeters. That's useless. But... Yeah, that's still pretty big. I I wouldn't be so quick to say that that's useless. It's the first thing if its 4
0: millimeters, that's... you can see
1: that. And so, um... They use sixty-four mini loudspeakers, which the whole entire system only consumes like nine watts of power. I um, have no understanding of what that is.
0: Okay, well, let, let's say that you were working with maybe uh, um, a dangerous biological sample that you didn't want to touch for some reason.
1: No, but how much is nine watts? It's okay. A light bulb. A light bulb is, is, is like sixty. Watts. So it uses like no. Like what kind is? of light bulb? Like a fluorescent one. No, no, incandescent ones. Oh, um, the fluorescent it? ones will oh, be 13, 13 watts. Yeah. So it's okay. even less than a fluorescent light bulb.
0: Yeah, like a thing. But you're moving
1: such a tiny thing. But, yeah, but so what? It's cool. <laughs> you're not using your hands. It seems to defy gravity because it's like, you're not touching it. It doesn't defy gravity. It's still...
0: Is it loud? Like, would it hurt your ears?
1: Yeah, I assume it would because it's really... Well, maybe you couldn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, I don't think you can hear it because it's so high-pitched, but I'm not entirely sure. Cause it, <laughs> the dogs would just freak out. <laughs> the dogs and you'll will, have a headache dog, and you won't know why. <laughs> but they can project different shapes of the hologram. So, like, one shape they've made is tweezers to, like, pick up things. They've also made, like, a twister or vortex, which kind of, like, holds the object in the middle. And then they've also used it to make something they call an hi- a high-intensity cage, which just basically is it Traps it. Yeah. Surrounds the object on all four sides. Um, as long as
0: it was a very tiny monkey. Like four millimeters <laughs> yeah, in a diameter. Yeah,
1: four millimeter
0: monkey. Like sea
1: That'd monkeys. Yeah. Oh <laughs> my <laughs> god! Like <laughs> <the> trap <backdrop> monkeys. <laughs> Absolutely. sea monkey so aquarium. They're currently... Um, they would die, because you can put water in there.
0: I don't know. What does it do with liquids?
1: I don't know, they haven't tested that. But I'm sure if you did it with water, it'd be like the cohesion of water would just become a little droplet, and it would be the same thing.
0: Yeah, as long as it was smaller than the surface tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Wait, could
2: you fit a, a sea monkey in that droplet? Yeah, sea monkeys are tiny. Yeah. Huh. You should email them and tell them what they should test that.
1: <laughs> Please put a sea monkey on your...
2: In a water droplet? Yeah, and... In your tractor a, beam? your tractor beam?
0: Well, they could probably pick, pick up the sea monkey. I, I don't know what
2: use the, tell me the, the more, tractor be- <laughs> beam tweezers the tractor beam tweezers to put the sea monkey in the water droplet that yeah. is being held by another tractor cage. Oh! Think,
0: think of the possibilities
1: anyway then the sound waves clash and like
2: I don't understand
1: how this works okay so anyways I don't know the whole science behind it because I don't understand sound things as as much as others um,
2: <laughs> that's <but> an understatement. <laughs>
1: that's, yeah, <laughs> but I think it's cool, and um, and that's the point of science, some, folks. There you have it. Well, that's what we're bringing. News that is cool. <laughs> so some applications include um, like transporting delicate objects for assembly without actually having to touch them. If you're like, ooh, know, like for for clean delicate. room type things. Yep. Yeah. Or um, also, they say. They could make a mini version of it that could grip and transport drug caps- capsules or, like, microsurgical instruments inside living tissue. So you could do, like, microsurgeries on things.
0: Okay, they told us how big they can go. How small can they go?
1: I don't know yet. They're right now designing a smaller version of the tractor beam to, ma- like, manipulate particles inside the human body. So, like, single molecules. I don't know how accurate that would be. But that's one way they're going. The other way they're going is bigger, because bigger is better. And they're designing a tractor beam that can levitate a soccer ball 10 meters high. So those are the two directions they're going right now. They haven't gotten there. This is brand new. Novel yeah. science. What is the mass of an inflated soccer ball? Well, it depends on the know. size of the soccer ball. Or regular
0: I think size. A, <laughs> I think they have a standard size.
2: Are you looking this up? They do have a standard uh, size.
1: 0.43 kilograms. Yeah.
0: That's like a pound. It's like a kitten. Maybe. A like, very tiny kitten. Like, yeah, like a tiny kitten.
1: <laughs> what do you want to do with kittens? But I would be more a excited... 10 feet in the air, obviously. <laughs> I'd be terrified. But no. Hmm. <laughs> but, but no. <laughs> I,
0: I would be more excited about the smaller sizes yeah. for use in clean room electronics construction.
1: Yeah. 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 Or like surgery. You could do surgery inside of somebody without having to like open them up.
0: You could groom your eyelashes. Yeah. (laughs) Without having to touch your eyes. For those of us who really don't like touching eyes.
2: Yeah. And for
1: those of us who grew eyelashes.
0: That as well. But I mean, you could. (laughs) You could. It's possible.
1: So, yeah, that's my Tractor Beam Alien, not really Alien story.
0: Yeah, I like it. I like
1: it. I'm
2: still imagining a tractor that's just kind of like (laughs) going through the air and. Playing like some it? hardcore beats and like shooting lasers everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> <Like>. <laughs> the,
0: the EDM tractor, the tractor of space. beam. Yeah, the
2: tractor beam. <laughs> awesome. Like you know how they have like like the bass bus. It's just like the tractor beam. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: Excellent, excellent.
2: Anyways.
0: Okay, so today I would like to talk about the strength of weak ties. So the strength of weak ties is a paper that it came out of the sociology department in Stanford, and what it's about. It's about one unified theory for sociology and human interactions. So it turns out that there's a split between social, like studying social cohesion among humans. Um, there's a good study on the micro scale, like between uh, a small group of people, and there's good studies looking at the cultural scale. But what's missing is the link and how you can join these two things together. So what they've been working on is to use social networks and to study the transfer of information through social networks to try and bridge that gap between the very small and the very large.
1: Please elaborate.
0: So imagine your friends on Facebook as... I
1: don't have to imagine that.
0: Oh, well, okay. So those of us who don't have friends on Facebook are going to imagine that we have friends on Facebook and that each one of these friendships represents a connection in a, like a spider web. And uh, you've got different strengths of connections. You've got strong connections and weak connections. So uh, some, some of them are just acquaintances, and some of them are your friends that you, you know you like everything that they post.
1: So it's like those people in your newsfeed that just show up and like, spam stuff, and you wish they weren't there. Aww, but you're like still me? friends with them anyways. No, you're one of the people who I like everything they post on my wall. Nice. Not everything. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay that's a different that's a different topic <laughs> but so the paper
2: tensions. Uh, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah let's take this out of the podcast studio okay later not now
0: to the playground like after after school
1: I'll see you outside
0: yeah would you buy the bike rack okay <laughs> so, so the strength of weak ties uh the paper's examining like, what is the, me- like, how meaningful are these acquaintance ties that you'll on- have on Facebook? And they're trying to make assertions around the relationship between these weak ties and uh, social cliques, strong ties. So they've, they've come up with, um, with some assertions that, for example, if there's a very strong tie and there are other weak ties related, there's a higher probability that the weak ties will be connected to each other. So this is all about degrees of separation. By looking at the experimental movement of data through these social networks, they're able to make these kinds of assertions that we haven't been able to make before. The reason I think this paper is very interesting is because it uses all of this big data within social networks to make an assertion about something.
2: I wonder how much they're allowed to collect. Can just anyone do that? Can you email them and ask them for this stuff? How How does that go about Or, because also another thing is for... The thing that bugs me about sociology studies very often is that they have their sample size, but if you go to the university, for example here, the University of Calgary, they'll just have posters around. So they'll recruit from this student base, and usually within their faculty. Or if they do stuff like this, it'll be a certain group of people, and the sample size won't be nearly as large as you want it to be. So when you actually look at the methods... They'll be like, we used a thousand individuals, and then you realize how that's a lot of stuff to go through, but that's Not so minuscule, yeah, yeah, to see any large-scale patterns.
1: Yeah. The coming in with our sample size. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, you only really need 25 to begin to approximate a normal distribution.
1: I
2: think it's actually, like, oh, man, there's, like, a magic number. But it's weird because it's like, depending on how many replicates you have and how many samples, statistically, some combinations don't work very well when you do the, run the statistics, depending on what distribution you have and what test you're running. So there are certain, I guess, preferred combinations of how many samples and how many yeah, I, I individuals in each sample. Maybe
0: the to. existence of a bias within your sample is a, is a more serious concern yeah. than the actual size of the sample itself. Because even if you have a very large sample, if it...
1: Yeah. If you well, that's what you're that trying diverse. to
2: account for, sample error, by increasing your sample size. Which is why another thing with stuff like this, because if they're looking at certain networks of people and they have to actually analyze people who are connected, they are picking people who are connected in one sample.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
2: it is like a community of its own, I guess.
0: That's true. So the findings of this paper are that, yes, there is a very large impact on the larger scale. According to the smaller scale properties, such as many strong bonds within a certain group, like creating a clique that's very tightly coupled, to many weak bonds, fewer strong bonds to have a loosely coupled group.
2: What <laughs> applications does this have um, to real life? Because you know we want news that you can use.
0: Is that, is that our next slogan? I didn't. New I didn't realize news. that was in a, a New requirement. News, wow. news I just think news. it's cool because it's like the unified theory yeah. for social cohesion.
2: But usually, like the reason I ask is because sometimes when you read these papers, like they always put a little like two two sentences at the end that'll say, "Oh, future research or this could be useful for this," just so that you know they're trying to validate their science because they probably did it because they thought it was cool, but they have to explain why. Why is it could isn't be that important. valid?
1: Yeah, that's valid. <laughs> to, to, I thought to this everyone. was cool. So what? <laughs>
0: Okay, Thanks well, for the, funding. the model offered here is a very limited step in the linking of levels. It is a fragment of a theory, treating only the strength of ties, by only treating that it ignores some of the important issues in involving the content of it. So
2: mm.
0: I think that's, that's their next step in terms of the research. But what they're establishing is that there absolutely is a very strong relation between the micro and the macro.
1: Thank you for the story, Lauren. You seem very dissatisfied, Anna. I'm just hungry. Okay. Uh, so...
0: Are you hungry to the point where you're suddenly a little bit angry?
2: No,
1: you're just Are hungry you for angry? science.
2: No, I'm not quite angry. Just distracted. Distracted. Okay. okay, so my next paper comes from the Journal of Ecology, uh, my favorite journal. I read it all the time. Don't understand some of the things in it, but that is beside the point. This paper is titled Context Dependence of Maternal Effects, Testing Assumptions of Optimal Egg Size, Differential, and Sex Allocation Models. So I should start this off with a basic introduction of what allocation theory is in ecology. It's very self-explanatory and it has proven many times, I shouldn't really say proven but supported, in papers for the past however many decades. And it basically deals with the fact that most animals or plants or any sort of organisms have a limited supply of resources that they have access to and a limited amount of energy. So they have to distribute these things into their methods of reproduction, and there's certain trade-offs present in the allocation model. So for example, if you are a bird and you have to lay a certain clutch, if you lay a clutch of more eggs, they will have to be smaller eggs, but if you want to have larger eggs, you will have to lay less of them. Or for example, if you put in a lot of energy into the eggs you lay, your percentage or your probability of living on to the next breeding season will be lower. So the more energy you put into your offspring, the less energy you'll have for yourself. And it's the same with plants. So, for example, if you decide that you want to grow your root system, you cannot grow your leaves, for example. and Or if you make seeds, you have to make many small seeds or a medium number of medium seeds or very few, very large seeds.
0: Okay, so this is the conservation of energy within biological systems.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's a conservation of resources, I guess you could call it. So there are very many studies done in controlled environments for this sort of phenomena, and it's fairly well accepted among ecologists. What this study does that's fairly interesting is it looks at the effect of environmental quality on evolutionary ecology and allocation. So, for example, if you have, in this case they use birds, so if you have larger eggs...
1: Is that the colored flycatcher?
2: Yeah. Yay. Uh, Yeah, they looked at the colored flycatcher, which is a very pretty bird. You can Google it if you like. I did, <laughs> um, but what? Well,
0: the- <laughs> I don't want to look it up. What does it? What does it look like? What if? What if our listeners are driving? We um, can't Google well, it and drive. True.
1: Rochelle said it looks like a. We chickadee. don't
0: support such reckless practices.
1: The female version kind of looks like a chickadee, and the male version kind of looks like a chickadee that's black and white instead of brown and white. They're cute, and they look like balls. Like the fluffy. <laughs> just like any other bird <laughs> that is of a small. I just like birds. I think they're aesthetically a <laughs> ap- like they're nice to look at. Okay. That's just me. Sorry if and we have offended any ornithologists out there
2: <laughs> with our super lax description yeah. of said birds. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they look like a ball with
1: feathers. It's cute.
2: So this paper looks at the interaction between environmental quality and these different types of allocation, which is usually not considered in this type of modeling. So for example, if you have a certain bird that lays a larger clutch size, but with smaller hatchlings, they might have a lower chance of survival than a bird that lays a smaller clutch size with larger hatchlings. But what this looks at is what if the environment is good enough that it can support either smaller or larger size. So either one has an an equal chance of surviving just because there's enough resources, there's enough food. Yeah, so everyone can, like, kind of survive if it's a high-quality environment that they live in. So in this case, while you would kind of predict certain traits to become established in a population because they're more advantageous, if there's a good season or, for some reason, just there's a period of time where the environment is favorable, none of these things will get established. So So, like,
1: natural selection is nullified.
2: Kind of, yeah, so on, on this particular trait, yeah. yeah. So what this looked at is um, whether they looked specifically at egg size and, I guess, hatchling size in that case, and if it did react with environmental quality. So this study found that there is a strong effect of egg size on offspring morphology for survival in the short term, and these things were independent of postnatal conditions, such as hatchability, fledging success, fledgling mm. wing length, and other qualities had a strong were stronger in low quality postnatal conditions so such as nestling mass and tarsus length so it's not even necessarily that all characteristics of the animal will depend on lower high quality environment and how they react to that but some of them are dependent and some of them are not okay. so some things do pose an advantage in high, quali- high quality environments still no matter how quality it is but some don't and i guess that depends on various species and organisms but that would be the job of another evolutionary ecologist to go in and study how those certain traits provide an advantage. But this what this study does is just shows that in some cases they do, in some cases they don't.
0: Well, which population became more numerous, The small eggs or the big eggs?
2: Well, the point is that in in a high-quality environment, it doesn't matter. Well, like Neither of those have an advantage it would just, in the certain smaller characteristics.
1: Eggs, like, the smaller eggs ones would just become more because like they produce there's more, more of them, right? every single round. Like even if they all
0: survive. That that does favor the smaller eggs because then there's more of them.
2: But then you in that case you're kind of comparing across species because okay, what happens in one species is that usually they'll have an average clutch size and an average size. Yeah. So among those there's very little variation. So you would have to compare across actual species of birds. So if one has a higher larger clutch size with smaller eggs rather than
1: Oh, this is just yes. one species. Yes. So, like
2: within one species you would not get a variation enough, like it's not like for some reason a bird decides to lay oh, I'll lay three very large hatchlings and then another bird will lay 10 very small ones. So, it's very hmm. like it's very stable within a species.
0: I wonder if they could do it over multiple generations and see if the hatch brood size increases.
2: Mhm. They probably could. I'm sure they've done it probably cuz that's what he called just use they just sit there and watch the same thing over and over again for years and years. Yeah. So, which would be interesting. There's lots of studies done on great tits, actually, if you're interested. Okay. To look those up. And then what they saw was if the postnatal conditions were high quality, sometimes there was a negative effect of the trait that's usually advantageous, and they don't know why that is. Hmm. But they were thinking maybe it's because of sampling error, or maybe some kind of negative side effects of yolk hormones that are correlated with egg size, which is also very interesting because there are just so many things that you could...
0: So, so some of the traits that they would see more predominant when the population's under pressure were under becoming pressure. less common proportionally or in totality?
2: No, they. it's not to, to see if it becomes less common or not. You have to go for many generations, and the study wasn't done over many, so they were just seeing how these various attributes, character attributes, were contributing to the survival okay. time of these animals. Oh okay, okay. so over that those ones that they tested in a high quality environment, none of them mattered, so it just means that any of them could be inherited.
0: yeah, so it was
2: even though one of them
0: the could, luck of the draw could, for yeah. what traits like survived the longest.
2: yeah, so that was kind of interesting because it also it makes sense mm-hmm. when you're yeah, you when you're talking for
1: everything yeah,
2: when you're talking about like Maybe natural selection, it. it makes sense that like nothing would be acting if there's no selection pressure
1: because there's no competition between them
2: but at the if same yeah
1: resources are all present for everyone
2: but at the same time if many of these like optimality approaches deal with a certain trait being more advantageous mm-hmm. just regardless of environment so they don't account for the fact that there are periods when nothing is advantageous where certain less advantageous phenotypes can become ingrained in the population again
0: mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense
2: so it's a very technical paper but i thought it was cool And um, they also say that there's a stronger dependence of offspring quality on the initial size in harsh environments, in various plants and fish and amphibians. And kind of the explanation for this is because their parents provide very little postnatal care. So in those ones, they just have the children and then they leave and there's no parental investment. Okay. So that way, so if and they're that large, larger. yeah. So th- which makes sizes. sense because if you're larger and you have more resources, like mo- more yolk, for example, if you're oh, an animal did that it have favor resources, favor larger
0: eggs or Both. more offspring.
2: No, larger eggs. Okay. Yeah. So because then they fend for themselves. That's usually the the case.
0: But salmon lay loads of eggs.
2: For fish, there's different types of reproductive strategies. So they're ones that if they breed once, then you want to breed as many eggs because it's not that they're making more smaller ones, but they're gonna die afterwards. So they're putting all their energy and they're just making as many as they possibly can. Okay. Whereas there are fish that breed again and again, they lay less because then they have they have to survive onto the next reproductive.
0: Oh, okay. okay. And actually, yeah, and that that's within the scope of the initial. Mm-hmm. restriction of the study.
2: And that's why you also um that's like the reason for the fishing laws where you can't catch fish that are high, larger than a certain size because usually the ones that live to a certain age actually have high, higher fecundity. Okay. So yeah, that's the reasoning behind that. But that depends on their species and their reproductive strategy.
0: Today I learned.
2: Wow. I
1: hope that made sense. It was kind of difficult to explain. I think we got it. Speaking of fish, that's what my next article is about. Zebra fish in particular, which is a popular aquarium like fish but also a model organism used in lots of scientific studies. So this paper comes from the Journal of Neuroscience and um, it is titled Scientists at Monash University in Australia have now found how zebrafish heal their spinal cord after injury. Mm-hmm. So zebrafish can regrow lots of things of their bodies. And they can regrow or regenerate like their fins, their skin, their heart, and their brain and now we figured out how they can regenerate their spinal cord as well. How so, do they do it? Well, I shall tell you. But first, I'm just going to give a background of how spinal cord's healing kind of works in mammals and humans. So, when you have an injury to your spinal cord and it's severed, your immune system will kick in to activate specialized cells called glia cells, And these glial cells prevent your blood from the rest of your body entering into the spinal cord when it's severed, because that's not a good thing. You want to keep the spinal fluid in there and the blood separate. And so these cells proliferate to form large masses of cells to block everything off and form scars, glial scars. And these glial scars are super dense, and you can't, because of that, axons from your motor neurons, which tell other parts of your body how to move, Axons cannot penetrate through these scars, and then that's how you become paralyzed because your nerves can't send muscles or signals to your muscle anymore. And so, zebrafish have the same cells, same theal cells that form a bridge between, they actually form, well this is the part that's different, they form a bridge between the severed wound, and they're much more porous and shaped differently, that allows axons to enter the wound or the scar. And penetrate the nerves again, or the nerves can penetrate the muscles again. And then they can regain the ability to move.
0: But they're still dense enough to keep the blood out of the
1: spine. Yeah, but they still keep the blood out of the spinal cord. Cool, cool. It's so, like a coffee filter, but of, letting nerve cells go through. I was hoping of. there was something that we could just be like, hey, we can do this now. But well, they're going to hopefully be able to, because it's just a protein that is changing the shape of these glial cells. Oh. And the protein that they discovered that does this was called fibroblast growth factor, or FGF, the transcription factor. So yeah, it, it's, the, it's the protein that's controlling the shape of these gliosols that's allowing them to be more... I don't know if porous is the right word, but allowing the axons from your nerves to penetrate through so each the muscles.
0: other animals don't have the same protein. Mm-hmm. So, so if, they, ant- if they harvest this protein from the zebra fish, yeah. then they could potentially use that as... Uh, that's a therapy what, that's for what spinal they're cord injury. Looking
1: to hopefully do in the future. Um, I think one of the main issues that they they end up with first is like when you have are involved in an accident where your spinal cord is severed, you're not likely to be like right next to proteins that you could just inject into you before like the scar tissue formation starts happening. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing that they have to work around which they don't really mention how they're going to do that. But First, I guess, their main thing First they have kids. First they have to isolate the protein and see if they can clinically trial it in humans and if it's okay and if it works with the human body kind of thing, which they should be able to, I hope. It just takes time cool. money, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, lots of money. Um, but, yeah, it's one application they hope is, they don't know if it would be able to completely restore paral- like restore movement in uh, paralyzed individuals, but they think it might be a new door to open or a new way to explore, so yeah, I think it's super cool for for nerves and neuroscience and That is interesting. Although
2: I wonder if that would be useful in the spinal cord or spinal column, but not in other parts of the body. So you would have to use it just for treatment of that, because I wonder if it, it probably wouldn't mess things up in other parts of the body.
1: Yeah, that's also a thing that they would definitely have to take into consideration, because I don't know how FGF factors into other parts of the body and how it affects other areas with fibroblast cells.
2: That's so much research to do
1: still. So. Yep, yep. Well, I gotta start somewhere.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Science.
2: Science. Really. There's always <laughs> more science
0: to do. <laughs> Excellent. So, the paper that I have today is.
1: Cerepods?
0: Yes. Oh. It's about dinosaurs and yes. sound. Not ah. tractor beam sound, but.
1: Not tractors.
0: And not tractors. And not
1: agriculture. Because
0: dinosaurs are both bigger and cooler.
2: Than tractors? In my opinion. Not all of them.
0: Well, no, that's true. But these ones are.
2: Okay. So, in
0: 1997, there was a paper put into the P- Paleobiology by Philip Curry, suggesting that maybe sauropods use their very long tails as a whip. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> so, uh, he built a mathematical model, examining how quick they could whip their tail. And it turns out, I according to my the math... I back and forth with my tail. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that... Uh, according to his model, they would have been able to create such a force to break the sound barrier.
1: Oh my gosh. And
0: with with such a loud sonic boom, that would explode human eardrums. So they could have used it as defense, they could have used it for very long range communication. Huh. Uh, however, people were skeptical. So they oh built course. one. So they built the tail end of And a patasaurus.
1: And ruptured their own eardrums, and then they were proven wrong. And everyone died, Uh, like the dinosaurs. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) Oh, the
2: irony.
0: So luckily, they decided to make it a little bit smaller.
2: (laughs) So so it
0: wouldn't be so disastrous when they set it off.
2: Why would you ever do that in science?
0: But after spending nine months building this metal model, they were able to construct the tail of the dinosaur and demonstrate that it was enough force being transferred by the bone structure to create a sonic boom.
2: Cool. Pokemon makes so much more sense now. I know, right? Sonic boom.
0: (laughs) Super effective. (laughs) Way better than Splash.
2: I'm just picturing Indiana Jones. Yeah, that's what
1: I was doing, cracking his whip. Yeah, but just like a dinosaur Indiana Jones?
0: Except you could like make T-Rexes cry. Well, I mean, they might be dangerous to you.
1: Um, But I might also never hear ever again.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure how T-Rex ears work. Yeah. They might have a more tolerance for loud noises than ours. What determines that? Just like
1: thickness of eardrum?
0: I think... Well, I think there are many factors that go into it because the smallest bone in your body is in your ear and it serves to magnify the signal from your eardrum into your Mm cochlea. So depending on how that's structured... Because there are different types of ear injuries you can get. You could blow your eardrum, but you could also damage your cochlea very seriously.
2: I'm sure this would do both.
0: <laughs> Potentially. <laughs> Potentially. So, this is also a very interesting endeavor, since it's the new trend with paleontology, to be able to 3D print the bones of the animals that you're studying. Oh
1: my god, 3D printing is just a trend everywhere. Yeah. They're printing everything.
0: I know. It's it's like the new hotness. It's
1: like the new like printing press. 3D. That was a very,
2: very good observation <laughs> on your partnership.
1: That is exactly no, what like it is. The revolution.
0: Like, like the cultural implications yeah, that of the printing not press.
1: Just like, a print- not literally no, a like, printing press, but 3D.
0: It's the coming but.
1: of the printing press, but in 3D. Like when the printing press was invented, and they could publish a billion Bibles at once instead of just writing them out by hand. It's like that, but with 3D.
0: Maybe. You wouldn't download a car, but I would. Because then I could print it on my three D printer. Which I miss that is Dad. awesome.
1: I don't pirate movies. I print
2: them.
0: <laughs> Perfect.
2: That made zero sense.
0: <laughs> well, these are all the stories that we have for today on our show where we bring you the new news now. So get your voting ready, choose your favorite one, and then it's gonna be we'll- the dinosaur
2: one. It's going to be the dinosaur one. Because I said
0: dinosaurs, right? You know, or like, I know traitors, how to cater cause tra- to... Cater?
2: I am hungry. Let's go. <laughs> <get this.
0: laughs> All right. And with that, we're going to take a food break. Thank you very much for joining us today. Bye!
2: Bye! Bye! Bye!